This morning, I want to just kind of put you in a scene, a scenario, so just kind of put your thinking caps on, join with me. Let's say you and I are co-workers at a company in town, and we've got a co-worker, Lisa, and the three of us and some others are on a project together, and uh, in this particular project, Lisa really is kind of the brains and the glue. So it was her idea, her design uh, in this project, and it was really her encouragement to all the team members that brought out the best we had to offer to make this project what it was, and so, and the project really is a, a, a smashing success and a lot of profit a big windfall comes to the company and so after this project is completed the, the executives want to get everybody together to recognize what's happened in this moment in the history of the company so they they bring all the employees together and they, they talk about what a success this project has begun and then they turn to give recognition and they turn to me and they give me all the recognition for all that's been done and all the little moments in the project success, they give me the credit uh, and, and in a sense the glory for what's happened for the company. And in front of everyone, they grant me this massive promotion. Now, picture you are were a part of that project. What would you be thinking in that moment? What would you be feeling in that moment? Probably at... Little did you realize that behind the scenes, at every turn of Lisa's work in the project, I was in the executive's ear, whispering to them and claiming credit for everything that she was doing. And so in that moment, when they turn and give the credit to me and not Lisa, my guess is your jaw would drop, wouldn't it? My guess is also that you would probably feel a great anger inside of you. Like, how in the world is he taking the credit that Lisa deserves? And probably in that moment, you would want some vindication of some sort for Lisa in that situation. So what's the point of that opening illustration? Well, first, just don't be mad at me. It's just a story, all right? Those kind of stories can evoke some emotions. Uh, that, that did not happen, right? So, uh, but what, what, what's the point here? Well, in our passage today, we're kind of brought in to... Uh, a little bit of, I think, of what I think is a penetrating insight about humanity and about God's motivation, but it really is a cosmic um, scene in which this same kind of scenario is at, at place here on who will get the credit and the glory. And our passage today in particular is in the, uh, the book of Isaiah. We need to dive, we need to look a little bit at the context before we can get into more how this kind of cosmic scenario comes out, the cosmic version of this scene. And particularly, this book was written by Isaiah uh, to God's people who were in exile because of idolatry. And so God's people, what we saw in the book of Judges, was still happening in this day when Isaiah wrote, but they were essentially chasing after all the surrounding gods of the cultures, and that landed them, the consequence was it landed them in exile under Babylonian rule. And they would be faced in exile with the same challenge they were faced when they were in exile. And that's that, would they chase after the gods of the Babylonians? But also there would be a unique challenge that they'd face, and that would be that they would struggle to believe that God really loved them as they were in exile, that he really wanted to fulfill his promise towards them. And so, uh, particularly Isaiah 40 through chapter 55, God's addressing several issues with his people. And two of the most prominent things are he wants to comfort them in this season, to comfort them that he really does care for them, that he really is coming for them, he really does have a future for them. But also, he wants them to compare who he is to see that he is far greater than all the other idols around them. 
And our passage today, Isaiah 42, is what theologians call the servant song. And particularly, some of these are about Israel, but this one particularly is about Jesus. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, he connects this servant song to Jesus' ministry. That it's a prophecy, what we just went through, uh, about what Jesus would come to do. But in this passage, we're going to see something profound about humanity, but even more importantly about God and what, what wires him and what uh, he is passionate about. And so here's where we're going on, on the sermon up on the screen. You'll see it. This is our summary. What I hope the Holy Spirit helps us to see is that our God alone is worthy of all glory to be the greatest treasure and trust. And he will go to great lengths to get what is rightfully is. Let's pray. Father, um, as we come to you this morning, we, we walk in this place with lots of things going on in life, and uh, at times it's even hard to gather and to even focus on the songs or focus on the scriptures and to hear what really is being shared from the Word because we're overwhelmed with all the other things going in life, even if it's just, just the little things of what's going to get done later today or starting tomorrow morning. And so what I ask that would happen in this time is that we would, as we gather, that you would do something that we have no power to do, which is to open our eyes, that we would be captured by who you are in your word and what you would have for us to hear this morning. And would you help me, even God, what we hear this morning to help us from Isaiah, to help us understand all that's going on in our life. And what motivates us and what drives us, but more importantly, that you would help us to understand you, who you are and what you came to do for us. And let us leave this place more captured by your worth and beauty than when we walked in. We ask that you would do that for your name and your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to focus here at the beginning on someone or something will get the glory. And so we've got to, this idea of glory really is central to our passage today. And I want to unpack that for us. We'll look at verse 8 to start with. And in verse 8 we see this. That he said that God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And so we, we kind of talked about this concept of glory a little bit in our confession and assurance of parting. But God is after glory. He doesn't want it to give it to someone else. And we want to go deeper with that for a moment. So you're going to see a quote on the screen from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible that kind of is in a snapshot. It's a really short definition when we see this phrase glory that we don't really use a lot in our day-to-day -day lives. It says God's glory refers primarily to his majestic beauty and splendor and the recognition of it by mankind. So glory in our passage is for God the place of of high honor that is reserved for him alone. And, and just a chapter later, chapter 43, it talks about that we were created for God's glory, to show forth who he is. And so what does that mean, to be created for God's glory? Well, it means he's created us to show forth his beauty and splendor. And then it's a recognizing that you and I are his image bearers, which means that we're to reflect that beauty and splendor to the world around us in our daily lives. And the quote from Tim Keller brought in there that that's done through obedience, but also seeing his supreme attractiveness, right? And so there's something about being created for his glory that is captured with us recognizing who he is and what he's all about. And so how is this done? 
In the day-to-day life, how is it done that we show forth his beauty and his splendor? And that we see it or captured by it? And I want to give you two words. And they're on your screen as well. But it's giving him the rightful place in our hearts. In two ways. He's our treasure and our trust. Our greatest treasure and our greatest trust. And where, where, where are we unpacking that from? Well, as human beings, there's something unique about us. That in our wiring and design by God, we were created to treasure things. And really to treasure someone or something in this world. You, you can call it worship, but I'm choosing to call it treasure. Because we, we have particular religious connotations that we attribute to the word worship. And what's going on here is much broader than religion. It captures the essence of what you and I and all of humanity was wired to do, to treasure something. But also, we're going to always look to someone or something or trust someone or something to give us this sense of meaning and security and purpose we long for our lives. And so this concept of treasure and trust really is at the core of glory. We're created to treasure and trust all that God is for us. And treasuring and trusting is, in a sense, our recognition, our right response to who he really is. And this treasuring and trusting was at the core of the idolatry, the problem of idolatry, on which this text was originally written. And so for the Israelites, they, they uh, in their world, if you were in the ancient Near East, I mean, the fertility of your land, the fertility of your wounds was crucial. And so if there was going to be any economic stability, any economic security, any future for your people, you needed fertility. So for the Israelites, they looked to the, the cultures around them where they chased after those things. And they began to treasure and trust what the surrounding cultures did to give them a sense that they would have that economic security in the future. Also for them, they looked around and they knew the threat of the Babylonian Empire. And so they looked to the Egyptians and the Assyrians, although God told them, listen, you can trust in me alone. If you treasure and trust in me alone, I will protect you. But in their sense of insecurity, they looked around them. They looked like Egypt. They had a lot of power that the Assyrians might have come to their aid. So they formed these treaties with them. And you can go back in Isaiah 31, 36, and 37 to speak to that. And so they looked to really their enemies to give them a sense of security. They trusted maybe they would help us in a time of need. But all along, God was saying, please, look at me. Recognize that I am alone in the place that you should trust. And so in our day, this inclination to treasure and stuff is alive and well. It just looks rough to religions. When you go out in our culture, people spend a lot of money to be captured by something bigger than themselves, whether that's some kind of concert or some kind of substance or some kind of entertainment. People are constantly looking for ways they can be caught up in something much bigger than themselves, right? But it also happens in the daily moments of our lives. And I want to speak to a few specific things that I think that we treasure and trust, but I want to speak to them in a sense that goes beyond just the daily, how we function with these things, just a deeper reality that happens in our hearts, or many of our hearts, as we look to these things, that put it in the, in the language of Isaiah. We often trust in a portfolio to give us an elusive sense of security, don't we? We don't just have it in order to be good stewards, we trust in it to give us the sense of security. We don't just have achievement entertainment, we treasure it. We look to them. We plan our lives around them. We sacrifice for them. Election year is coming up. 
We don't just look to them to govern our government. Oftentimes we can look to a political party to trust in it, to give us this future that we treasure and we long for. We can long for or treasure the approval of a person or a group or a significant other. Not just enjoy it, but to treasure it above all things. And the reality is, every picture you see on the screen, every example, these are all good gifts that were meant to enjoy and look back to the giver. But so often what happens for humanity is we take these gifts and we begin to treasure and trust them above all things instead of our creator alone. And, and when we do that, in the language of verse 8, we're giving them a place of glory that was only meant for him. And so here's the problem that this verse poses for us. It calls out this natural reality that you and I, we all treasure and trust something in our life. And that treasuring and trusting is going to give someone or something glory. But here's the issue. This passage is saying that God is the only one that deserves and is worthy of that glory, of that treasure and trusting. And so in my opening story, you were shocked as, as I got the credit and the glory something that someone else did Lisa right in the same way we see that scenario playing out here as well that God alone is worthy of the credit and the glory let's go and, and broaden out from verse 8 and see what's happening in verses 5 through 7 as well it'll be on your screen we're being to see here that God is the one the rightful place for that glory so if we pick up in verse 5 this is what God the Lord says who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And so I want us to see here the structure of what's going on. The structure of this section is important. So verse 5, in a sense, reminds us of who's speaking and the weight and authority of this person. So before he foretells what Jesus is going to come to do, he says, you need to listen because I am the creator, I'm the sustainer, I'm the one that holds all things in existence. And here's what's going to happen. And this would be the ultimate comfort for God's people in exile. That it's not just their immediate situation that we've remedied, but it would be something far greater for all the world. And so verses 6 through 7 foreshadow that what the Creator would send Jesus to do. And then verse 8 is the assurance or the justification of why God is sending Jesus. So we looked at verse 8 in its isolation for a moment. We're going to zoom out and see how it's a part of the bigger passage here. But I want us to think about 6 and 7 and how this foreshadows Jesus' ministry. So it speaks of this language that God would send someone and appoint someone and he would be the covenant for the people. And what that's getting after there simply is that Jesus would become secure in eternal relationship that would be fully and forever for his people. He would secure a relationship with the Father. And he speaks about this language of a light to the nations in order to be open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And so I want you to think about that imagery. It's a really amazing imagery. Now, I want you to think about it in the context of the next verse when he speaks about glory that he deserves 
alone. And so what I think he's getting after here is that we are naturally blind to seeing God's worth and beauty. And because we are, we treasure and trust something else. And then you get this picture of bringing prisoners out of a dungeon. And there'll be a slide that comes on the screen here of a picture of a dungeon. And it's such a rich imagery. And I want you to think about this for a moment. And the image in our passage is one of you and I, and all of you men, being captive in this dungeon. But we're there of our own doing. And I think what this dungeon is signifying is the place we find ourselves when we begin to treasure and trust something else other than God. That we look to these things of the surrounding culture and we think, if I have this achievement, if I have this approval, I have this particular uh, elusive goal in my 401k, if I can gain whatever else, that will be what I long for and what it becomes is a dungeon for us. A place that promises freedom but delivers bondage. And so the very things we long for, we never get. We are trapped in this dungeon blind from seeing the very things that will free us. God's worth and God's beauty. All of humanity is giving something else that only God deserves. Treasure and trusting. We're stuck here. This is our sin. And the picture of the framing of what Jesus would come to do is that he would come to shine light forth so that people can see God for who he is and be free from the captivity and the slavery of sin. That's the picture there. But then verse 8 comes in and it tells us God's resolve. Where is the motivation for God in this? What is his resolve to ensure that this very thing happens? And we go back to verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So he is committed to opening eyes. He is committed to freeing captives from the dungeon. And verse 8 is the justification of why. God is saying, I'm going to send Jesus to bring light, to cure your blindness, and free you from slavery. Why? So that you could give me the glory that I deserve. See, the dungeon, where we are, we're giving something or something else, someone or something else, the glory that God deserves. We are treasuring and trusting something else. And so Jesus is going to come to open our eyes and to free us from this dungeon so that we can then turn treasure and trust the one who is fully worthy. That's the picture we get here. That's the justification for God's result. That's the commitment to make it happen. And so think about that for a moment. We usually say here that Ultimately, Jesus came because he loves us. So this passage is saying in verse 8 that Jesus is coming to free the, uh, the captives to give God the glory that he deserves. Does that mean it's not out of love that Jesus came? Well, I'm going to mention a, a brief explanation of that. But honestly, I'm going to turn you back to your study guides. At the, the end of the week, there's a good reflection there from John Piper and a few other authors that, authors that kind of expand on that a little bit more. But I will frame it this way. His love is integrated into his glory. And it's the most loving thing he can do for us is to come and not make a big deal out of us, but to free us from this dungeon, to open our eyes so that you and I can be restored to relationship 
of the one with all the worth and beauty, that we would be caught up in who he is. Ultimate love wouldn't be coming to make life all about you and me. That's the very dungeon that we find ourselves in. Ultimate love would be freeing from being suffocated and fixed on our own little lives to be caught up in something bigger than us. And so God, in reclaiming us to give us the give him the glory that he is due, to treasure and trust him alone, is actually the very most loving thing he could ever do for us. That's the picture we're getting here. God seeking his rightful place in the world and in our hearts is pure love. And verse 8 packs a punch. God is resolved to recover what he is worthy of, our treasure and trust. And this whole passage, from beginning to end, is layered with reason upon reason of why that is his rightful place for us. That is his rightful place. And so I want us to look at that in particular. Why is God worthy of this place? Why is he worthy of coming and reclaiming his glory? In particular, this passage points to his name. I am the Lord, that is my name. And so the concept of name in the Old Testament is different from the concept of name now. It points to something about that person, about who they are and what they have done. And in particular, you'll see in, in the version of the Bible, you read Lord in all caps. And that was the specific Hebrew name for God. That captured, that would only the Hebrew, uh, the Israelites would use for him. That captured, he's the covenant-keeping God, the rescuer who came to recover his people out of slavery in Egypt. And that's a name specifically they would have for him. That, that points to who he is and what he came to do. And so I want us to pause for a moment. And see and be convinced of his worth in this passage, by who he is and what he came to do. That his rightful place on why we ought to treasure and trust him and give him the glory, do his, do his name, is because of who he is and what he came to do. So let's look at his worth because of who he is. And let's start back in verse 5. This is what God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and, and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. He's reminding his people of this. What does this say about who he is? It says that he spoke the vastness of the universe into existence. And he thought of you, and he designed you, and he brought you into this world. Our hearts are pumping, our mind is racing, the molecules in our body hold together right now. Our lungs are, are, are functioning because he enables them to at this very moment. Who else can say this? Who else in all of creation can say that very thing? He is worthy alone of being our treasure and trust. And look at verse 9. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. What does this say about him? That he just doesn't know all events. He reigns over all events. You know, I don't know about you, but every week I go in a week and I, I have outlined what I want to, I, in a sense, declare what I want to get done that week. And when I announce to my little world what I'm going to accomplish, and especially when it comes into the weekend, and rarely does what I declare happen to any remotely of the standard of what I wrote down, right? Because I don't have the power and authority to make myself and everyone around me do whatever I think is right. Are good, but God does, right? It's his right and his place. He can declare and announce 
and they actually happen. I mean, who else can say this? There are totalitarian governments in the world, but none of them can declare and announce everything that comes to pass. No one has that rightful place or the power to do that besides him alone. He alone is worthy of being a treasure or treasure and trust. And then we move all the way back to verse 3. And we're going to put this picture together. It says, He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. I think we can understand a God who encapsulates verse 5 and verse 9, a God with absolute authority. But usually, when we think about a God with absolute authority, what we project in our mind often about him is that at worst, he's a terrible dictator. And at best, he's just harsh. Stories of challenge and brokenness. I mentor in the school system, and uh, week after week, I hear stories of cycles of poverty, cycles of abandonment, cycles of moms and dads not being present. And I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of days of hearing these stories where I think, does it really matter what I do? There is no way I have any power to accomplish anything that's going to change these cycles. And it's very easy, just in my, my little bit of knowledge about the brokenness of one quarter of the world, one little spot in the world, can think there's just, what, what's, what's the use, what's the point? Do you ever feel that? If you teach in our school system? If you sit over families in court? If you interact around in our community, maybe in your own life, and you look about the history, do you feel discouraged? Do you feel weak that, that there's no way that this can change? What do we see about God here? God sees all injustice, not just our own little part we see, and he is resolved to making all things right, and he will return, and he will not grow weak, and he will not be discouraged until he finishes an all wrong. Even the strongest among us can't even come close to saying we will not be discouraged or not grow weary, but this is our God. This is what he promises. And then we see verses 6 and 7. And we talked about this before, but I want to look at it from a little different angle. He says, I will appoint to you a covenant for the people, and that's Jesus. And he will be a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. And the angle I want to come at here is that God's word is seen not just in being a light, not just in freeing captives, but the lengths that he would go through to do that. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross shows us the lengths he would go to to get his glory and indeed show his glory. So we are people who have stolen God's glory. We've given others what is rightfully God's, our treasure and trust. And those things have failed us, but we keep going back. And this cosmic treason of ours to steal his glory, just like in that story, that treason to steal Lisa's glory, has left us with this eternal punishment, stuck in this dungeon of our own design. And so he sent his son not to lecture us, but to free us. To see Jesus' worth and beauty 
would cost him everything. It wasn't just a side hustle. It wasn't just a little bit of thing that he would do to come help us. He didn't just come to be a model and to teach us and to show us the right way to live. In order that we could be freed out of this dungeon to be captured by something bigger than ourselves and to be restored and given what is rightfully God's. And there is no 401k that will sacrifice for you. There is no political party that when you fail, that party will forgive you. It is reserved for one and one only, Jesus himself. It's a great church. We all treasure and trust someone or something. Yet that is the rightful place of our king and father. And he is committed to seeking what is rightfully in. So where do we go? Is a, is a response when you work through this passage and you come to verse 8 that we have to ask ourselves, what in your life is getting the glory that only God deserves? You have only your life has been captured in this dungeon. For something bigger than yourself that you've never had. And you're in this prison of your own making that you've gotten there because you've been caught in the same pattern of all of humanity of stealing God's glory. And the answer for you this morning isn't try harder. The good news is someone came to free you. Someone came to give you light. Someone came to free you from the dungeon of self and bring you into the kingdom of God. And the answer is not in trying, but turning. Turning and calling out and asking him to open your eyes to see his worth and his beauty to free you from the chains, to be captured by something bigger than yourself. And then others here today have been free, yet we do struggle to want to go back to the dungeon. We struggle to want to see his worth. I know that's where I find myself so much in life where I have been free from this dungeon, yet I want to keep going back down into it and putting back on the shackles that he is free. And so we've got to ask ourselves this morning, where we find ourselves in tomorrow morning, especially when we wake up, what will we treasure and trust in as we leave our homes or go to carry about our day? Isaiah 42 reminds us that he alone is worthy of that place. And the good news is I think when we're in that place and we keep going back to the dungeon, we often can think to ourselves, to, can I turn to him again? I mean, I keep the same pattern up. Can I keep going? Will he receive me again? Will he welcome me again? I keep choosing the dungeon over his glory. And Jesus' death proves that he will receive you a thousand times over. He went to great lengths to restore you. And he knew all the very ways that you and I would treasure and trust other things above him, even after he's freed us from the dungeon, to prove to you how much he longs for you 
to see him as he is. That leads us to our next application. That we would marvel, that we would daily marvel at his words. And last week when Shane uh, worked through the passage of Mary and Martha, uh, he outlined that essentially you and I do have a choice as followers of Jesus. Will, will we be distracted in life? Or will we be marveled at the one we were created for? Now we've got that choice every single day. And so I want to get real practical here. And, um, there's a sense where I do hope that we're uh, awakened in a, in a new way to God's worth and glory through this passage. But what I, I really want to push us towards is a more daily response to who God is and his worth. And that's that we, and I, the language I want to use here is that we would fall forward and stumble forward in trying to see his glory each and every day. You know, we've, uh, Brian talked about this, that if you're not a part of a connect group, this is a real practical way that you can fall forward. But if anything, grab the study guide and open your Bible each day, asking God, Fall forward. You might not have a lot of desire. You might have five minutes. You might have 30 minutes. But fall forward and say, God, would you show me something of your worth today? Would you help me see how you alone are worthy of being the greatest treasure and trust of my life? And then when you walk out into work, when you walk out in to take care of kids, when you walk out to the grocery store, ask him to help you see his worth and beauty in all that he created around us. Great church, he has set us free from the prison of treasuring and trusting something other than him. And so let us walk out of this dungeon each day into the light of his glory to see his worth and his beauty. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and there's no words that can give weight and articulate the power of what you say in verse 8 and the love that is contained in you coming to open the eyes of the blind and freeing us from the dungeon. Father, but your Holy Spirit came. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of us this morning, that you would help us as we come in here and we all we have known is life in the dungeon. And some days that dungeon might seem a little pretty, but the really reality is that we are trapped in our own treasuring and trusting of things that are worthless. Would you free those people this morning? Would you open their eyes to see what Jesus came to do and help them walk out of the dungeon this morning into your light? And Father, for those like me, who walk in and are supposed to even speak upon these glorious things, but still struggle to see that you are the greatest treasure and worthy of my trust. For those of us in here like that, Father, would you convince us once again? Would you help us, even tomorrow morning as we wake up, to fall forward asking you to help us see your worth and your beauty? that we would trust and treasure you above all things. Would you help us to see that in our jobs? Would you help us to see your worth and display your worth in our parenting? Would you help us even to see it in the little things as we make a meal or wash clothes? Your worth and beauty can be seen everywhere. Help us to see it, Father. We need you.
we thank you that you've come for us. We thank you that you've come for a stubborn people who struggle to see you as you are. And we worship you. It's your name we pray. Amen.